On the Good Morning Hamilton podcast today, Scott Radley in for Rick Zamper, and we, of course, will be talking about what is going on in Ukraine with Russia and everything that we know up to this point, although it is a quickly and constantly changing story, but we will do our best to give you as fresh information as possible. We will talk about your addiction. Yes, I said your addiction. There is a very high likelihood that you are an addict, and we will talk about that one. We're going to talk about March Padness to help the Children's Fund. Uh, we'll explain what that is. The downtown core in Hamilton, lots of discussion about what should be happening with shelters and things like that in an area that's being redeveloped. We will dive into that one. Patrick Brown, possibly running for the leadership of the Federal Conservative Party. Would he have a chance? Former Ontario conservative leader and the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame got five new inductees. Who are they and why are they in? Stick around. You're going to learn about all of it. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Alistair Edgar is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and he is the executive director of the Academic Council on United, the United Nations System at Wilfrid Laurier University. He joins us now. Uh, Mr. Edgar, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, you're welcome, Scott. A uh, lot of things I wanted to ask you about this. On the weekend, or late last week or on the weekend, I forgive me for not remembering which day it was, the United Nations Security Council met to discuss what was going on in Ukraine. And entirely predictably, Russia, which has a veto, uh, vetoed the move to criticize or put down the, the Russians' move into Ukraine. Can the United Nations be useful or be impactful in this can they can it really do anything because it's going to continue on it's going in front of the general assembly can anything happen here of value um there, there can be in the sense of further isolating putin and russia um yeah you're you're quite right scott entirely predictable on the security council um that that russia would would veto a draft resolution um now it goes to the as you said to the general assembly um, there's a, an emergency session of the General Assembly, um, and you can see, you could see 190, possibly, not China, and doesn't look like India, and not North Korea, uh, but perhaps 190 countries condemning this, this act, which is a clear violation of the UN Charter. Um, that, again, is just, it's another a very clear condemnation of, of Russia's action here doesn't mean the UN can do anything, you know, the UN doesn't have an army, uh, it isn't going to be putting troops on the ground or anything like that in, in Ukraine, um, but it can certainly further isolate uh, Russia and, and diplomatically as well as economically. And again, I don't mean, I'm not being uh, silly here, I'm trying not to be glib about this, but we sure. know that almost every country right now already has that feeling, has already made that case clear. So even if 190 countries come out and say we are against this, does it truly change anything or is it just crystallizing it? Uh, crystallizing it, clarifying it um, for for Putin, for the Russian people, I suppose. Um, yeah, it, in, even, even economic sanctions that are happening right now and, you know, the, the Russian uh, uh, central bank declined to open its stock exchange this morning because it knows the value of the ruble is going to crash even further, probably mm -hmm. further than 30%. Um, but economic sanctions, as heavy as they are, aren't going to change Russian troops on the ground. Um, so it is limited in that sense, um, but more pressure on Putin, more pressure on the oligarchs around him uh, doesn't hurt. The other thing to remember about the, about the UN is that it's not just the Security Council. Uh, the UN is in Ukraine right now uh, with 
the High Commission for Refugees, with the Food and Agriculture Organization, with the World Health Organization, with UNICEF. You know, there's there are a lot of UN uh, officials or representatives on the ground delivering food, medical assistance, and other things to to the Ukrainian people. I obviously, I mean, not obviously, but I I admittedly do not spend as much time reading and studying the UN uh, as some people do. Um, and so I was doing some reading on the weekend, and one of the things that struck me as very, um, it's a bit of a conundrum for the UN, is many of the countries are passing these resolutions for sanctions towards Russia, and yet back, apparently, uh, you can tell me if this is true, in 96, the Assembly has adopted a resolution that um, sanctions financial sanctions are contrary to international law. Is the UN in a in a bit of an unusual position here that officially it can't, because of that, it can't really demand or ask people to make sanctions, but it can sort of say, well, we won't stop you from doing this? <laughs> Something to remember about the UN, um, and, and I was, it, it's always interesting, it, what people think the UN is. Um, I, I try to describe to people, there are two UNs in that sense. There's the UN Secretariat, the, the people who who work for the UN, and that's that's an international civil service. They, they have never have been designed to have, and they have no authority um, over member states, right? The UN is an organization of sovereign states. Um, so whether it's the UN General Assembly or the UN Security Council, those are the actual decision-making bodies. And so states do what they want to do. They pass whatever agreements they want to pass. And just like, you know, when one government changes to another government, uh, policies in that country can change. Um, so can things that the UN decides to do. It's, it's what the member states agree to. All right. And I want to ask, I want to switch tack a little bit because it's not directly about the United Nations, but uh, again, uh, things that we learn, you know, the only positive perhaps of something like this happening in Ukraine, because there's almost nothing positive about it, is that we do learn things that maybe we didn't know about history or about geopolitics or whatever that we weren't paying attention to before that we catch up on. And one of those things, I think, for a lot of people, and maybe even some not yet, is the Budapest Agreement or the Budapest Memorandum uh, that was signed years ago, which was was for the de-nuclear uh, armament position of Ukraine. Ukraine would give up yeah. its nuclear weapons in exchange for, essentially, a guarantee that the states and a bunch of other countries would look after it and make sure that it was safe. With what's happening here, does that make it almost impossible down the road for any for an agreement like this to be happening with any other country? Because clearly that promise hasn't or cannot be kept in this case. Yep. Um, again, it sounds very very much like an academic answer. Yes and no. Um, and, you know, at the end of the Cold War, uh, a number of countries that had held nuclear weapons. And Ukraine, remember, had Russian or Soviet nuclear weapons on its territory, um, agreed to give them up. Um, in fact, I think it was this, well, as part of the, the meeting that's been happening today in on the border of Belarus, um, the Belarusians have announced that they will no longer maintain their non-nuclear status. Now, basically, that means that Russia can put its nuclear weapons uh, onto Belarusian soil. Um, so again, you know, these things change. Um, yeah, it will certainly um, make countries that might have had nuclear weapons before that are sitting on the borders of um, 
Russia rethink that. Um, but that really is only Ukraine and Belarus at this point. Um, mm. It's it's not going to. There aren't very many countries that are thinking about obtaining nuclear weapons. Um, you know, the ones that we know about would have been, at least, um, Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Um, the other ones have basically got them if they were thinking about them before with with uh, North Korea, with India, with Pakistan. Um, so it's a pretty limited range of countries that might have been worrying or thinking about becoming nuclear weapon states. Wish we had a lot more time. Alistair Edgar, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Wilfrid Laurier University. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Welcome, Scott. Happy to chat to you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Last few days, Good Morning Hamilton, we here have been reaching out to members of the Ukrainian-Canadian community for their reaction to what is going on in their country, in Ukraine. Konstantin Showeli is the president of the Hamilton branch of the Ukrainian National Federation of Canada. He joins us now. Konstantin, thank you so much for the time today. Good morning, Scott, and thank you for having me on. You know, it's um, I've talked to a number of people, both on the air and off the air, who have family and friends back in Ukraine. I'm assuming you do as well? I do, unfortunately, right now, yes. And have you had any contact with them? Because I've been, frankly, I've been surprised that communication systems have stayed as good as they have during the war so far. But have you been able to communicate with them? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, Fortunately, in the western part of the country, we've been able to maintain contact with our family uh, that's situated there. But uh, we haven't been able to contact our family in the eastern side of the country um, since the bombings began. Um, whereas recently we spoke with them the, the, the day before and the following day they were evacuating and we haven't heard from them since. So we do not know where they are currently within the borders of Ukraine um, or whether, whether they're alive. One of the really uh, difficult things I would think, especially for someone or people who have family and friends there, and I talked about this earlier in the show, we were talking to another guest, it is so difficult to know really what's happening there right now because there's so many stories they talk about the fog of war there's so many stories so many reports it's 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 got to be very disconcerting to be as unclear about what's happening as it is uh, i would agree it, it can be confusing uh, as you uh, get accounts from 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 different parts of the country at different times we, we do have a, a a difference of uh, approximately seven hours from our time zone to ukraine's time zone so as information is getting processed uh, uh, new events are established and we're sometimes behind, sometimes we're ahead thanks to the intelligence that has been offered by um, the American government and our NATO allies. But uh, yes, it, it can be uh, uh, disturbing at times when we, when we get conflicting information. The one thing that seems to be consistent, and, and I hope that it's true for certain, and I'm sure you do as well, is the success that the Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian people, quite frankly, have had resisting the Russian forces so far. Has that surprised you? That that Because, I mean, a lot of people thought when this started, Russia was going to roll in and a day or two with their military power and their equipment and everything else, it was going to be over quickly. Has it surprised you that Ukrainians have been able to hold on as well as they have? Um, yes, Scott, to a certain extent it has. Um, we knew that uh, we didn't have the same size of an army. We didn't have the technological capabilities that, that the Russians have. But uh, we knew that uh, the people had the will to fight for their freedom. You're not going to let somebody walk into your house and say that this is theirs now. Uh, so I'm not surprised that the people are taking up arms to fight, but it, it is turning out to be uh, sort of a war of attrition as, as the Russians have 
uh, uh, supplies that seem to never end, and they, they just keep pouring in. And uh, ultimately, that's that's what the Ukrainian uh, uh, people need. They need the supplies to keep this going. But uh, we were caught off guard with the with the with the defense of the country uh, by the civilian population. But uh, we're we're very glad that they're being able to hold up the defenses that they currently have. Well, there, there was a rally. There were rallies all over the place. I mean, let me before we get into the rally here. Have you been like I have, have you been kind of blown away by the response around the world? Because it is literally everywhere, including amazingly in Russia, the number of rallies for people siding with Ukraine and showing support for Ukraine. I've been blown away by it. And I'm not Ukrainian. Well, as far as Russia goes, um, we've seen we've seen protests and rallies uh, over the last few years there. They just seem to be crushed brutally by, by the uh, government there. Uh, they do not let them protest. They do not allow them to express themselves freely. Unlike the rest of the Western Hemisphere and the democratic uh, uh, world, where we are allowed to protest, and, and more recently, uh, we've seen uh, an outpour of support, which which is unprecedented. But it's that kind of support that's required. It's 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 crucial that the world knows what's going on. That we don't have a disinformation campaign. Uh, people need to talk. They need to make each other aware of what is going on and and share information. Share those firsthand accounts. But the outpouring of support from the from the global community is it's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And and you know you you mentioned about how those protests in Russia are crushed, and yet they're out there. There are thousands of people. We see video of thousands of people protesting the war and being arrested. How do you how do you wrap your head around the difference between Russia attacking Ukraine and the Russian people? I mean, I, I know there is a difference, but sometimes I think that can get lost a little bit. Well, as much as I want to be sympathetic to the Russian people that are not involved in this conflict, and and that doesn't mean just to the Russian people that are within the Russian borders, but outside of the Russian borders, uh, even the even Russian uh, Canadians that are here, I, I would expect them to uh, stand up, speak on, speak out against uh, Putin's evil regime and what they're trying to do. Uh, I would ask the Russian Canadian citizens, go go protest uh, yourselves in front of the Russian consulate. Tell them that you're not happy with the way you're being represented because it tarnishes their image and it will tarnish it forever uh, because of one person's doing or, or, or a small group of people that are trying to, to reshape the world order. Um, I, I, I would ask that the Russian people continue doing what they're doing within their borders, but they probably won't hear this message. But the, but the ones outside of the Russian borders, um, we need to see them speak up. We need to see them rally against what's going on. If they really do care about this injustice, if they really do want to do something about it, they need to convince their government leaders uh, on every branch of government that what is going on is wrong. It's, it's absolutely wrong. Konstantin Shuali, the president of the Ukrainian National Federation of Canada, Hamilton Branch. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the time to speak uh, on, on behalf of the Ukrainian uh, community. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I think it's time to talk to all of you addicts who are listening to me. As I said, addicts, and I mean you. If you are listening, I I think we are talking to you. And here's why. There is a new study out, and this is probably a surprise to almost none of you. There is a new study out that says six in ten people could not cope without their smartphone for a day. And if you get a low battery reading on your smartphone, one in eight have anxiety problems from that. 
Is anyone surprised by this? I, I don't think so. Professor Steve Jordans is a d- professor of psychology in the Department of the Alt Lab at University of Toronto. He joins us now. Professor, thank you for the time today. Great to be with you, Scott. Is it is it too strong? Am I being too hard on people to refer to them and me, by the way? I'm not excluding me uh, <laughs> as addicts. Well, actually, uh, I know in the latest, um, what, what's called the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, it's the manual that psychologists use when they're categorizing um, disorders of various sort. There is now a thing called internet addiction. Um, so the smartphone is, is typically our vehicle for getting access to the internet. But yeah, it is certainly the case that for some people, um, their addiction to the internet is, is so dangerous. Now, that, this will be the distinction we talk about. You know, when does an addiction become a real addiction? But for some people, for example, they're playing video games in their room all the time to the point of not eating and to the point of sometimes becoming suicidal because of what it does to their life. So um, there is an extreme form. It's out there and it's recognized. What it, What is it psychologically or it officially, what is the dividing line between, you know, really extreme habit because I love to do it and addiction? Yeah, any any disorder in psychology, the, the critical line is this behavior, whatever it is, has to be very damaging either to people around you or in some cases to you yourself. Uh, and so, you know, that's why most of us don't see our, our addiction to our cell phone as an addiction per se, because it just sort of fits into our life and we don't see it as a, a negative influence. Now, if you're the kind of person that looks at your phone or stares at your phone during social situations like dinners or whatnot, you may not be uh, yeah, Maybe. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Hit a sore spot sometimes, yes. So you may be realizing that is negatively impacting your life, but you might not realize it. You might just feel like, I don't care. That's how we do things these days. But that's that's the line. Um, and, and in some cases, it can become very dangerous. Yeah. Is it worth testing yourself? Like this seems like the kind of thing. It's not. It's not yeah. like crystal meth or something where, you know, f- you're physically harming your body. But is it worth doing a test to say I am going to put my phone on the other side of the house and see if I can go for five hours without it and see how much I'm reacting? So, so I do this with students, and I, I teach them at about 450 at a time. And and when I do that, I say, hey, can I get some individuals who will go a couple days without their phone, and and then tell us how they felt? Did they have withdrawal symptoms, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? And I say, hands up, who will do this? I can often get about two <laughs> 450 <laughs> that will even take up the challenge. And often when they do take up the challenge, they report the same sort of failures an alcoholic might report where they say, okay, yes, I snuck, uh, you know, I went and snuck a peek at my phone or, um, yeah, I didn't use it, but that's all I thought about is what I was missing out on um, by not looking at my phone. So even though I wasn't using it, I was thinking about it 100% of the time. So a lot of these withdrawal kind of symptoms start to come out and and that gets people thinking like whoa just how 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 strongly am i tied to that little thing anyway have there been actual studies mris or cat scans or whatever done of people's brains regarding this because i know there has been with other addictions to see how your brain responds and withdrawal or whatever have we done any physiological testing to see if there truly is a physiological response to this Hmm. So you got me there. <laughs> I, I suspect the answer is yes, but the, the implicit in that is, do I know of the studies and can I tell you about them? Um, and well, I don't let me, let me switch them. the question. Let me switch the question for a second. Yeah, yeah. Is it, do we know if it's the same part of our brain that would be going crazy with phones if we're away from them that would be from cigarettes or from booze or something if we were addicted to that? Is it all the same area of the of the brain? 
Ah, thank you. Yes. So, so we talk about this distinction between biological addictions and psychological addictions. And biological addictions are often very chemical based in the sense that if you start every chemical that has an influence on us does so because we have that chemical naturally in, in our system. And if you start taking some chemical, let's say morphine, then the natural version of that, our endorphins, uh, our brain starts to produce less. Uh, and so it says, oh, you've got an external source of that. I'm not going to produce as much internal source. Okay. And that's the key of a biological addiction. Now you have to backfill what your brain's not producing and you get hooked. Psychological addictions are fascinatingly different. The key thing that makes them work is what we call random rewards. And this is what it is about your phone. You know, you looked at it, you put it down, but maybe something has happened since you looked at it. Maybe somebody commented on your post or shared it or whatever, you know, all these little things that happen in social media world. And our brain starts to think when these things happen randomly, even though we just engage in the behavior of checking, just not long after that, they start to think, oh, yeah, but there could be another one because sometimes these things come really quick. Uh, and so I think a statistic I saw was something like something over 160 times a day, an average person checks their phone, just wow. looks at their phone yeah. um, to, to get that. And so that's what hooks us with gambling. That's what hooks us with a lot of the psychological kind of addictions. Um, certainly gaming, people who like to game, they get those random rewards every now and then. And that's what the phone is doing to you. That's that's so that's why it's so hard to leave alone. OK, um, so every person knows about Pavlov's dog. Yeah. Is this the same then that the bell rings? Cause you hear the bell, you hear a ding on your phone and immediately if you're, and this is why phones in cars are such a problem. Cause as soon as mm -hmm. you hear a ding, you pick yeah. up your phone. Oh, suddenly I'm not paying attention. Is it the same thing? So it's not quite the Pavlov thing, but let me do two things. So one of the things you're getting at is our attention system. It can work in two different ways. Sometimes we deploy our attention for certain things. I'm looking for my car keys, so I'm looking all around. Yes, yes. Um, but, but the environment can pull our attention. Those little bings, that vibration of the phone, um, a flash of the light, you know, when, when a phone comes in and it lights up. All of those things naturally pull our attention. And that's what makes the phone so insidious when we have it around. We don't control our attention anymore. It does. It will pull it towards us or pull us towards it regularly. So, yeah, one of the single best things you can do with your phone is turn off all those notifications and consume information when you want to, not when the phone pulls you towards it. We only have 20 seconds and it's unfair, unfair to ask you this question, but we do need our phone. The difference is we don't need crystal meth. We don't need <laughs> booze, but we do for life with our work or whatever. We need our phone. Can we then, is there any way to break a, an addiction if it, if you have to still have it with you? Yeah, I think it's is always the case with a lot of these things. If you can take control and do the time and place. So one of the things I talked about is turning off the notifications as an idea. But, you know, learning to get good about not taking the phone to our bedroom at night where it can, can disturb our sleep, not bringing it to the supper table. Um, there's a little button on the side of the phone that most people don't know about. It turns it off. You can actually turn your phone <laughs> off and say, you know what? I don't want you to bug me for a while. Um, I asked students when they last used that button, and they never use that button. <laughs> but, yeah. but those sorts of things can start to make you in charge. And then you can use the phone when you need it, as you need it, but not have it controlling you. Professor Steve Jordans uh, from the University of Toronto, great job. Thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate the discussion. 
Thank you, Scott. No problem. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I want to talk about something else that's going on that CHML is involved in that is a, uh, a an important thing. Today is the last day of February. Tomorrow, thank goodness, we're out of February. We're on to March. We are moving towards summertime slowly, but we're getting there. That's in our sights. But that means it is the beginning of March Padness. I want to bring in Olivia McKay, who is the president of the Children's Fund from 900 CHML to come in and talk about March Padness. Olivia, how are you this morning? Good. How are you? Hey, fantastic. Thanks for doing this. Explain the idea. Well, explain what March Padness is. Um, it kind of started, it started in uh, 2019. I was um, it, just kind of give you background I actually ended up having a miscarriage in 2018 of December and just kind of knowing of all the kind of products you go through in that time I was on the phone with Hamilton Food Share uh, just shortly after that in the winter and we were just talking about them applying to the children's son and she came up and started talking about how you know a lot of the times not a lot of people um, donate personal hygiene products and I just said to her, I was like, well, we need to do a drive. Like I said, I know what I went through and I can't imagine how many other people go through and, you know, children missing school because they don't have products or the fact that a mom may not put food on the table, uh, well, choose to put food on the table instead of buying, you know, those personal hygiene products. So I wanted to kind of make it fun. And I remember going around saying, you know, um, I want to make this fun. How do we do this? And I went around to the mails and I said, what do you think of March Padness? Do you think it's okay? And I remember everyone started, like, they laughed and they, they loved it. And they said, Olivia, it's such a great idea. So we, we started in 2019. We did it again in 2020. And then COVID hit. We paused it. And I said, I really want this up and going again for 2022. And, and to be clear, and some of what you're talking about, which would be more intimate products, that's definitely involved. But there's other things too. It's it's uh, shampoo, it's body wash, it's laundry detergent, it's deodorant, it's toilet paper, it's toothpaste. It's it's pretty much anything that would be involved in personal hygiene. Yeah, anything like that. So you know your your body kits that you buy at the stores, like even like soap or loofahs, anything that you would use at home that you know sometimes you forget that that's what's needed. And, you know, you buy those canned goods, but it's always like, um, it's always those things that are needed as well. Toothbrushes, um, even cleaning supplies, because a lot of people don't buy those because they'll have, they'll choose the food on the table instead. Right. So if somebody was interested in donating either cash or products for this, how do they do that? So um, they can go to 900CHML. Dot com. They can. Um, there's a link there to donate straight to Hamilton Food Share because all the proceeds are going to Hamilton Food Share. They can text um, donate to three zero triple three, or um, if they want to do an office drive, they can do that, and then they can call me, and I will come pick up the products and then organize everything and them donate it to Hamilton Food Share. The easiest way probably for now, uh, text 30333, that's easy, or go to 900CHML.com and there is a link there and you can find all the stuff you need to know. Uh, please do contribute. It's uh, Even if it's a little bit, it would be uh, very helpful. Olivia McKay, President of the Children's Fund, thanks for doing this this morning. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900CHML. There is going to be a redevelopment of the downtown core, especially in the corner of Bay and York around First Ontario Centre. 
There is a group that is going to be redeveloping that facility as well as other downtown entertainment facilities and building up that area to be an entertainment precinct. The idea from that group is that this will be the place where people will come to go to a show or go to a game or go to some restaurants. There'll be patios outside. It is going to be a, hopefully, the plan is, kind of the place to be in Hamilton. Well, the story gets interesting for some because across the street from the arena, across York Boulevard, is the Salvation Army, where men go who need a place to go. Um, they, Many of them are at crisis points in their life. They need somewhere to be. And the question now is, should social services like that remain in that area that is trying to be built up or should they perhaps be moved somewhere else in town there are two very different points of view on this one one is the downtown is for everyone the other is yes it's for everybody but it doesn't necessarily have to be in that very spot don seymour is the executive director of wesley urban ministries he joins us now don thanks for doing this this morning appreciate it thank you it's my pleasure so where do we go with this this is i mean obviously i i don't hear anybody saying these kind of facilities are unimportant. I, I think there's unanimity pretty much that they do matter and they are needed. But what do we say about the discussion about where they must be or whether they should be in that very spot? How do we how do we make that case or where do we go with that? Well, I, I guess my, my first uh, observation would be, why do we have to make a case um, for where people are located to get service? Uh, you know, we, we were spending a lot of time in Hamilton displacing people, and, and uh, I think we could be spending a little bit more time or a lot more time on how do we coexist. Uh, you know, there's communities all over uh, the world, Canada, that have figured out how to coexist and, and have proper supports in place that, uh, that, that allow people to enjoy their downtown. And when I say people, I mean everybody, whether whether you're homeless or, or marginalized or, or somebody who's working in a big office tower. It, it, uh, it, you know, but, but in Hamilton, what we're doing is it, we're constantly shifting people, displacing them people, whether it's in an encampment or whether it's, you know, like our own organization had to, uh, had to move from, move from Ferguson Avenue over to Catherine Street because of, because of issues at, and we're not learning how to coexist. We're not sitting down with the people on an ongoing basis and asking them what they need. But what we do is we say, you shouldn't be outside. You shouldn't be here because you have a ton of shelters and there's other places you can go. Well, those are constantly full on any given evening. And I don't know if you've ever been inside a shelter. There are places that, that are necessary, but a lot of people uh, cannot or will not use shelters uh, a lot of people who are uh, who are black or indigenous will not use shelters because there's a lot of racism, uh, and uh, and and for others, it's it's the the proximity of a lot of people. So there, there we is start, we we need to turn the conversation to a different uh, to a different positive outlook on how we can coexist. Well, one of the one of the issues that has been brought up is um, look, the people are here who need it, and therefore we need to have the facilities in that very spot. The other argument would be, well, if you look at things like, you know, last year or two years ago, during COVID, let's just put it that way, um, when they had the shelter at First Ontario Centre, um, 
there was people went to where the facilities were. So as long as you had them in the downtown, as long as you continued to provide them, the people would follow those facilities because they will use them. And and that becomes the question then of is it is there a problem if it was going to be somewhere else in the downtown? Is again, is the is it important that it be is there something important that it be at this particular spot, for example, the Salvation Army facility? Well, I guess the Salvation Army was there first. That, yes. That's one thing we need we need to point out, and and a lot of the organizations such as Good Shepherd Mission Services, Wesley, they were there first, and and it's not a competition. I think we need to look at if we're going to displace people, we're going to run into the same issue wherever we set up a shelter, wherever we set up uh, a, a, an urban um, a, an urban health clinic, we are going to run into the same issues that we're running into the downtown. People do not want the folks we serve and support. It's, it's black and white with them. Uh, and, and I get it. I, I truly get it. It is not pretty. Poverty, homelessness is ugly. When, when you walk past First Ontario, when you walk past those, those encampments, uh, you know, you're seeing people that are generally very ill with addiction or mental uh, mental illness. And, and you're seeing when you see all that stuff that's around, people forget those are the only things that those people own. And, and then we go in and we displace them. And most of their personal possessions are gone. Uh, a tent, a sleeping bag, whatever was there that they cannot carry tends to get thrown in the dump truck and taken somewhere. Uh, and you know, so all we're going to do is displace the same problems and get the same complaints just from a different neighborhood. And, and instead of looking at how we can coexist, and, and I believe we can coexist. If you go to large urban centers all over the world, you're going to see homelessness, and it's how we engage people. Kitchener did a great pilot a couple of years ago where they put peer outreach workers on the streets so that merchants and, and people in the downtown, and this was done by the Kitchener BIA, so the people in the downtown could call a, a particular number and someone would come and engage with that person. Instead of calling the police, they would call and, and you would get a, a trained peer support worker. And often often that peer support worker was accompanied by somebody with professional qualifications to go and engage the person and redirect them to a place that was set up, whether it was a, whether it was a day center like operated by Wesley or, or something else in the downtown. And, and I don't know what happened to that pilot project, but it was very successful. Police actually talked about the number of interventions and how they plunged while that project was in place. So that's one way of doing it. And the other thing is that communities are experimenting with uh, with sanctioning sites where they set up tiny houses or people are allowed to set up tents because municipalities are recognizing that the things that people need, housing, medical supports, simply do not exist, that they don't exist. Everybody on the street, probably not everybody, but a lot of people probably require years of rehabilitation and medical treatment. And that doesn't exist. This is, this is not just a homeless crisis. This is a health crisis. Mm. You know, and we don't, we don't, we don't even know how many people are dying. We did a, a brief, uh, a brief survey. The doctors at Shelter Health Network did a brief survey over six months, and, and they were able to target 19 people who died who were homeless. Homeless. They died of homelessness, uh, and and it's probably a lot more. But we're not collecting. We haven't been collecting those stats very much over COVID, and, and understandably because public health has been completely focused on on keeping our community safe. This, this is going to be something that, uh, Don, I wish we had a lot more time. It's going to be something we're going to be talking about for a while, I'm sure. Don Seymour, Executive Director, Wesley Urban Ministries. Really appreciate you coming on this morning, Don. Thanks for doing this.
My pleasure. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We don't know when yet. We don't know exactly how and we don't know who, but there is going to be a federal conservative leadership race. And when I say we don't know who, well, that's that's not entirely true. We know Pierre Polyev is going to be jumping in, and we are hearing rumblings that Jean Charest may come in. And now we're hearing rumblings that Patrick Brown may be interested in running for the federal Conservatives. Patrick Brown, of course, the former leader of the provincial Conservatives here in Ontario, left in a, well, at the time, a scandal that in retrospect turns out to not seemed to be much of a scandal at all. It just sort of disappeared, I think. Uh, Kim Wright is principal and founder of Wright Strategies. Thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, let, let's go to that thing first, because I think that for a lot of people, the name Patrick Brown is synonymous with that night when he left Queen's Park and the cameras were following him and this was the end of Patrick Brown. Clearly it's not. Whatever happened to that? Because it just sort of went away go away. And, and obviously, if Patrick Brown decides he's going to enter into the conservative leadership race, you're going to see that clip of him running out of the you know multiple stairs to get out of Queen's Park. You'll see that clip over and over again, uh, certainly by his opponents. Um, but the, the rumor at the time that made him step down was that there was some inappropriate uh, behavior between him and the female staffers and and, and the like. So that uh, almost at the height of the Me Too movement. So there were certainly questions. There still are questions around that. But Patrick has gone off to become uh, the mayor of Brampton uh, quite successfully. His polling numbers, if he were to run for re-election in Brampton, uh, have him at this point all but untouchable. So the question is, why does he want to come back and decide to run for conservative leader? Why now? And then then with the municipal elections coming up, as your listeners will know, the municipal elections are coming up in October um, in Ontario. So, you know, Patrick's got to figure out whether or not he can win the leadership. And if he doesn't, does he have time to get out and then back into a municipal campaign? It is a great question always that you raise about uh, anybody who's at a lower level of politics, uh, in the pecking order anyway, um, there always seems to be that desire, doesn't there, that with so many of them that, you know, I've got to get into something. We see municipal politicians all the time jump to provincial or federal, even if they are, as you say, and probably because they are so popular. I mean, it's sort of a conundrum. You could win and ride this out indefinitely, or you make this move. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, and I know people often call municipal lower level of government or the... I know, I hate that too. I was wrong. <laughs> it, it really, it, it, and, and I hear it all the time, and I'm a municipal affairs expert, and the amount of things you can do, how swiftly you can do them at the municipal level, uh, if you want to, uh, is really remarkable, and there's so many things that our municipal governments touch um but, you know, sometimes people see that, you know, I can be on the shiny power in politics or shows or go around the world as opposed to getting some of the other work done. Uh, Patrick, has, Patrick Brown has done a good job uh, as mayor of Brampton, both in rehabilitating himself, but also just as, as mayor of Brampton. And listeners might remember they've had some scandals over the years in Brampton. So uh, it's not an easy place to 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 run their government. So whether Patrick decides to fully get in and stay in, because there's always the difference, and we see this in politics all the time, someone you know puts out their leadership bid and then realizes it's just not there for them. 
Um, so it will be interesting to see who gets into this race for the Conservative Party and who stays in there by the end. Um, and I think what we're looking for this week uh, is the leadership contest rules. When is it? When are membership cutoffs? How can you go and raise raise the money and raise your profile and raise those, uh, those all-important memberships uh, to get into this race in a serious manner? And I, I also, as even as I was saying it, I hate calling municipal politics lower level, which is why I added in the pecking order, because it's true. I mean, it is, it's incredibly important and it's, it seems almost unfair. Uh, okay. So if, if Patrick Brown was to decide to get into this, who does he find support from in the conservative party? Who, who are the people or who, what are the interests or the concerns of the people who would find a Patrick Brown candidacy intriguing? Well, Patrick Brown has always been a really great grassroots on the ground organizer, uh, both within uh, throughout Canada, but also in in various uh, ethnic communities. Uh, He has done a really great job about organizing and keeping people involved. So uh, I never underestimate his organizational skills. The question will become, uh, who does Patrick Brown want to be as leader of a G7 country? And that's really what Canadians and Conservatives are looking for right now. You know, Pierre Polyev, uh, we're hearing, you know, lots from his campaign about, you know, and, and from Pierre over the last couple of years. Um, but there really is almost a backlash around the, the trucker convoy and how he handled or mishandled, depending on your perspective, uh, that issue over the last couple of weeks. And there becomes a question about, to your point, where is Patrick's growth, Patrick Brown's growth potential, and where is Jean Charest's uh, growth potential, and who is a dark horse that might uh, might still be out there that isn't yet in the race? Yeah, I mean, we only have a few seconds left, but when you talk about Patrick Brown, progressive conservative, more progressive or more conservative? No, much more on the conservative side, although he has been certainly mentored prior to uh, Bill Davis, uh, former Premier Bill Davis's death, was certainly mentored by him over the last couple of years. So I'm not sure if that softens uh, Patrick's perspective, but ultimately Patrick and all of the leadership candidates will have to show that they are more than just one particular facet of the conservative uh, party and conservative movement. And that's going to be a challenge uh, to do in the short time that we're hearing that they'll have for the leadership race. Kim Wright, principal and founder of Wright Strategies. Very much appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Last Friday, there were five new inductees announced to join the 2021, we'll join the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame as the 2021 induction class. Gary McKay is the executive, he's the chairman on the executive of the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame committee. He joins us now. Gary, how are you this morning? I'm fine. I'm, thanks for having me on um, the 24-7 uh, Scott Radley station. Well, <laughs> some days. Uh, some days, you know, but not old enough, apparently, to be into the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. <laughs> no, no <laughs> the, not quite. The class, the class you had this year, and there were reasons for it, but you guys decided to go with a Legends class again. So some people who are from well back in the past. Why? Why go with Legends this year? Uh, well, when, when this... COVID first hit two years ago, we debated whether we should even suspend operations and not pick anybody um, because we obviously weren't going to have a, a luncheon uh, to honor the inductees. So um, after much debate, we decided last year to go with a legends class, uh, people for the most part who were long gone. Um, and uh, we could uh, invite, you know, once we get back to being able to have a uh, 
uh, a banquet, a luncheon, we could invite their descendants to attend uh, at that time. Um, and then, of course, we were in the same boat this year. Uh, plus, we, you know, uh, we decided we couldn't ask any of our sponsors for any money either. Uh, it just wasn't right. Every day, all these businesses were hurting. So um, that's the, the reason we decided to go with the Legends class two years in a row. One of the things that I, I, I mean, look, there are people who are going to not know any of the names and that's natural because again, some of these athletes go back to the 1800s, Frank O'Rourke, a baseball player in the major leagues, um, goes back that far. Um, the, by the name, the names, Patsy Brandino, Fritz Martin, Jack McCormick, Ivan Miller, and Frank O'Rourke. One of the things though, that I do like it when you do a legends class is just that, um, there are some great athletes from way, way, way back who called Hamilton home that 95% Gary of people alive today know nothing about. And maybe when you guys throw a name out there, maybe somebody, particularly someone who follows that particular sport, is going to learn something about them. Well, that's one of the things we're always told, um, even when it's not a Legends class. Um, When we have our luncheon, people come up to me afterwards and say, I I really didn't know the story behind that person. And that's amazing. You know, we, we have so many great stories to tell in Hamilton about our athletes and uh, and digging into the past is is the way we find out about them. And there are there are still more people that go way back that I think at some point will be in the hall. One of those stories. So he's not. He went in a long time ago. Well, f- I don't know, six seven years ago now. I don't know how long even the hall's been going. I think it's ten years now, right? That you've been going. Uh, Twenty ten. No, so 12 years. Class. Okay. So uh, this will be your 11th class. So, I mean, what, you, what you're talking about, one of those amazing stories, and there's lots of them. I mean, you can go down the list of the inductees. But a number of years ago, a guy that uh, that I had known from around town a little bit, but Ed Beatty, right. um, who's, a, who's a boxer. And, uh, of course, it's Monday morning, and I'm drawing a blank, but he got a blood transfusion at one point from who? Who was the famous boxer that he got a blood transfusion oh, from? Oh, yes, I know that story, and I can't remember who it was. No, and I'll think of it in a second, but you're talking to him and it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, there's, there's a very bizarre connection. There's another one of a, uh, you know, a, a water polo player, um, who was Dave, in Hart. Dave Hart, who accidentally nothing to do with him ended up being involved in what happened in Munich with the Olympics, with the, um, with the oh, hostage the taking and the, coming in. Yep, yes. the terrorists and the, and nothing to do with him, just a weird time and place. But these amazing stories that you find out when you talk to these older people. Right. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I, I love when these stories come out uh, it, because, like I say, people are so excited by them. And you're a big help when you put these stories in the paper. Well, you know, that's uh, kind of what we're supposed to be doing, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> but it yeah, is. They, they it is. So, pay you for that, right? I believe. Well, some days, some days, most of the time, it um, most of the time you get some kind of uh, something for it. But no, it, look, it is a it is a great thing to do. I, I've been a big supporter because I think that we for a long time, quite honestly, um, didn't do a good job in this city. And sometimes, you know, when you, when you try to get things named after, we still struggle sometimes in the city, I think, to really honor greats who came before us. And I'm not sure why we have such a hard time with that, although we are doing better. Uh, but it's taken a while. Oh, absolutely. And, and we're um, uh, hopeful that we will actually have a physical location uh, completed sometime this year sooner rather than later, uh, down at the Eva Rothwell Center, where we can display artifacts from some of our inductees. Is that close to being open? Is that a possibility that things could be... Oh, it'll be, be this year. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it'll be this year. We're working on it now. Mind you, we've had a, like a basic two-year delay because the uh, Eva Rothwell Center's been closed a lot uh, because of COVID. We haven't been able to get in there. And even when we can get in, it's only one or two people instead of bringing in a crew to work on it. But that's that's changing, and uh, I think we'll be in there. Uh, I shouldn't say midsummer, but that's my hope. And if somebody, okay, so we got to run, but if somebody had something from Hamilton Sports History that they didn't really know what to do with and wanted to donate it, uh, what would they do with it? How could they, uh, they reach you guys? They would contact uh, us or contact me. Uh, you could go uh, online to uh, the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, and there's, uh, our contact information is listed there, and you can get a hold of us, and we'd be happy to hear from you. It is. Uh, it's fantastic. Go on the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame website. You can see, uh, you can go to the spec.com. There's a story about uh, the current class of uh, those going in. Gary McKay, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate Anytime, it. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.